everyone. Welcome back to the left page. I am Frank, your always online historian, academic writer, and I'm here today to talk about a very difficult, interesting, intricate novel, uh, which is fairly recent too, on violence and violence against women and also Latin America and culture. It is, it's a lot, it's a lot, and it is great. And I am here with the excellent uh, Valeria Villegas Lindval. Welcome. Thank you. Hi, Frank. Hi, everyone listening. It's a, it's great to be here with you. Yeah, it's ever since learning of you and your work via Romancing the Gothic, I was like, hmm, we should chat some more. <laughs> and especially <laughs> like with the show and you, you gave such excellent ideas for us to chat. And like, this is one of them. There were others. So that's something to look <laughs> forward in the future. It, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a pleasure and to have you on here. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. As a matter of fact, I was very, I was I'm very excited that we have the opportunity to talk about this book because personally, um, when I first when I read it the first time, for me it was just a gut punch. As I, I don't think I can find another way of describing it. Um, but just as a little bit of of context of how I came to this book, that it's probably a little bit related to what I do and who I am. <laughs> Yes, I mean, I reckon I'm not that well known, so I better make the listener acquainted with what I do. <laughs> uh, all right, so I'm a film scholar originally by trade. Um, I was a journalist, a music journalist, but now, uh, right now, currently, I am a doctoral candidate in film studies uh, at the University of Gothenburg. But uh, my main research interest, and I think it intersects very well with this book that we are discussing today, is precisely Latin American horror uh, in film and also how the representation of women is influenced by many factors that touch upon the political, the cultural, and certainly coloniality uh, and its influence and representation. So when I found this, of course, this also sort of amounts to what we understand now, as you have mentioned, are the structural causes for violence against women. And this is a salient feature, particularly this book. So, yeah. I mean, I think it's it's good that the reader is also informed that it is very emotionally taxing, however, beautifully written. Yes, it's it, it engages with, the, with these heavy themes like right from the get go and it doesn't pull any punches. It's never at any point gratuitous or it takes anything for granted. But it is, it's not a simple or easy read, even if it goes by really quickly. And yeah, uh, Valeria has, has had recently several like articles published in uh, a couple of books on, uh, I forget the... <laughs> yes, I have two recently published pieces. One of them is in Women Make Horror, uh, which is a collection of essays with different women that look upon the work of women in, in horror. So I write about Mexican filmmaker Gigi Saul Guerrero, and, and I think I'm in very good company. The book is edited by Dr. Alison Pierce, and uh, you can find it in your you know friendly bookstore. And more recently, actually, this past March, which is like very very close in time, uh, <laughs> there was another one published that deals with Cam. Uh, this, the the horror film, digital horror film uh, by Issa Matsey and Daniel Goldhaver, and that's published with Mike Farland, 
And the book is The Body on Screen, uh, Essays on Violence, Voyeurism, and Power. And uh, you can also find it in your friendly store. Hopefully I won't be tripping on the words because every time they have a subtitle, I'm a little bit confused, but oh, no you'll worries. know it. Uh, That's you'll what know editing it. is for. Exactly. So it's edited by, by Susan Flynn, too, by Dr. Susan Flynn. You can also find it uh, in your friendly uh, neighborhood bookstore. And I have some other pieces that are op open access on uh, on May journal of uh, that is a journal an open access journal uh, May feminism and visual culture. You can always find really interesting stuff there. I reckon it's a feminist journal uh, that is open uh, for readership and for authorship in in many you know, many topics regarding feminism and uh, and visual culture. And you can also find me on Grim Magazine. I, I realize that I've been doing so many things <laughs> on Grim <laughs> Magazine. And you can also find some other stuff uh, on Screen Queens. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, like uh, just introducing you and in, in a lot of your work because it's been, it's been great, even if I've been introduced to you and what you've been doing by a, a few different sections uh, via Romance in the Gothic. It's it's good to share more and that's part of the opportunity and chance to like to bring you and others on to like both elaborate on some of that work like in practice as we talk about a novel in this case but also like what you do and what you've been doing and how can people follow and support you which is great but yes more on that later uh so <laughs> i've just realized that we haven't actually mentioned the book we're talking about yeah and i think it's high time we do <laughs> The novel we're talking about is called uh, Come Tierra by Argentinian author Dolores Reyes, uh, which is, translates to Earth Eater. Um, and in, in general, the story is about this woman whose name I believe we're never even told, but she's known only as Earth Eater and is a woman who has the power, so to speak, upon literally eating the earth of those that lived in it or died in it in a lot of the cases see their fate uh, whether living or dead and in cases as we go through the story even communicate with them very briefly or hear them in some aspect and the story goes a lot about how she engages with that power accepts or rejects it and a lot existing in this environment of violence and violence against women and people disappearing and survival a lot of the times how she engages with herself her own body family which at the time consists only of her brother and just uh, existing really surviving and experiencing pain and loss and trauma and difficulties in on such a massive and widespread scale it's as again so uh, be, be wary of those themes, both if you do want to read it, which we wholeheartedly recommend. It's impressive. It's really, really good, but it's, it's really hard. And those themes are definitely going to be showing up a lot in this discussion, too. So just be forewarned. But yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I mean, I think when just to sort of open the floor about the conversation, I think something so significant that you bring up, Frank, is the fact that the character herself is never, it's never given another name 
then Gometierra, then the Earth Eater. And she's sort of connected to this fate in a very explicit way. And I'm, I'm really sort of brought to think about the significance of naming, because in the end, naming is defining, yeah. <laughs> uh, be it in literary you know, terms or more in a metaphysical kind of sense. Um, and it was, for me, it was very revelatory, um, revealing. I was thinking in Spanish. It was very revealing uh, <laughs> about the situation whereby she is defined by the relationship that she has to others. And this process that within the book, as you so precisely sort of outline, she's also coming to terms with this because it's something that is something of, of, a, of a faculty that is given to her that she is not necessarily pursuing it, but rather a little bit tormented by it. Yeah. And I think it stands in such you know, tragical, but also such a beautiful type of metaphoric relationship to the relationship that a lot of people uh, in like in, in general terms in Latin America or in this context as a woman living in, in Argentina have to to our own existences in, in a place whereby, you know, uh, the marker of being published or being racialized, of being gendered, being a woman is sort of like this this thing that is brandished upon the character as much as up, upon other people. So the fact that she is not even named, uh, but she does learn the name of the people that she sees and when she eats uh, dirt sometimes, to me is very, it's very powerful. It doesn't feel like it's an accident, you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Like the, it, it's so interesting because in a way, Cometierra becomes a sort of name for her, but it, only it only portrays to that relationship that she has to others that use really and what is really interesting is how and we'll get more on that later but the way she sort of uses her herself as a service uh, this communication and her power is she's given these bottles of earth really and the bottles usually have a name and this name is like sort of the defining feature of them. And the fact that she herself has no name is like, if she disappeared, how would she be called? How would she be found or not? She's almost a sort of absence really in, in coming on her own. Like that's, I think, one of, the, one of the things that is most distinctive about the story is how we are always with her and her own thoughts and notions. And she's trying to define herself, her own identity, her own personality, really, what is important to her as herself and not only as Cometierra or as sister, as a daughter, uh, or even, although she is not, uh, as a mother. So I definitely think that is one of the... It's particularly painful <laughs> to read a, a mm -hmm. character like that, but it's incredibly touching in how that connection and relationship is is established. Really, how we we follow her throughout uh, this this part of her life. Yeah, and I think something that sort of strikes me as a very significant component to this uh, theme and this topic about naming that we are sort of uh, going around. And something that I find incredibly relevant is uh, this thing you mentioned about were she to disappear, how would she be called? 
and I mean, deal, in dealing with how central it is to talk about forces appearance in this context, or to talk about uh, feminicide, uh, or you know, like feminicidio as like even a legal category that is no longer contained in anything else. It is so incredibly like I. That's why I found sort of uh, a gut punch at the beginning because you you do know that it is through her that we understand the lack of naming and this kind of like even reticence to give her name uh, seems so much like this sort of metonymical operation where she could be anyone and how all these especially you know I think thinking about our background like I mean the, the listener doesn't know I'm I'm Mexican. And thinking about this background whereby you have tons and tons of names, like if, uh, of these people that are victims to these sorts of crimes that are motivated by their gender or gender presentation, you think about how incredibly dehumanizing it is that they, they become a name or they become, it's like a mass grave uh, uh, that, with, that comes with every statistic. So I think that the novel and Reyes herself are so incredibly in tune with how painful that is and how unproductive mm -hmm. it is to sort of dance around it because it is such a so such a clear reality that were she have uh, were she to have a name cometerra uh, another discernible name it would probably just end up being yeah paved over by a number and yeah. it is it that is for me it's like gut wrenching <laughs> yeah i I hadn't even considered that that much, but it really that that connection is really close because on the one hand we are with this character who is for our intended purposes named, but not really. It's in the middle space, and to others, because again, like no one else ever calls her anything else, whether that is uh, intentional, like in the in universe and characters saying that or not and in a way she's constantly being like in any case like any woman yeah. she is every woman and she is every person who is potentially gone and potentially just to exactly. be disappeared exactly and i mean that that for like that sort of idea like this sort of uh, dynamics of foreboding you know like this sense of this is a situation that is playing out as the book develops in its own timeline, but we know that it has ripples elsewhere. And that while you're reading that, this might be happening to other people. And I guess that's why I find it so incredibly, you know, emotionally, emotionally taxing, but also so true to the incredible rage and desperation that it is to know that this sort of violence sort of ripples in a way that is no longer contained by time or space. It is just the reality that we've learned to live with. So, I mean, I think that it is maybe because of that, that the very powerful image of someone not having a name. And now that I think about it, like the, actually the book never really states where she lives. There is this also this liminality to space that yeah. she's in. Yeah, because there's no naming of a location except for uh, Tigre, like we can maybe assume that she lives in the proximity. I mean, Tigre is like, uh, like to the north of Buenos Aires, but we don't really know where Cometierra lives. Like there's this, 
yeah like it, when we do know about a location it's about somebody that died yes you know so even the lack of specificity there seems to play out to that purpose yeah like we are told of a name like at the very end either the final paragraph or like at those final sequences but mm-hmm. until then we it, it, it's it's in Argentina, okay, but it could be, it could be anywhere in Latin America at the end of the day, which is um, mm-hmm. not just that, um, but a lot of that feels kind of familiar, or, or could be, could be close, like that could be a, a sort of suburban area in in Brazil, easily, like, or it could be, or it is in Argentina, but it doesn't. The horror of this experience is much wider than this specific place, and the choice to like name it at the end sort of makes a lot of sense because it connects to that proximity to it. Well, it, it speaks to a particular place and time, but it's it's evidently much more than that, much more widespread than that, and I feel like that's really well executed because. <laughs> Although I, I was reading it in Spanish and whatnot, and I, I was well, okay, it's it's not here, but like <laughs> it could easily be, and that's uh, it's part of the horror of the thing. But just how it in not connecting to a specific place, like it it points to like these local landmarks and these buildings and warehouses and things, it creates much with Cometiera being a sort of like any potential woman any potent uh, the place becomes any potential place mm-hmm. yeah exactly and i mean i find that that's yeah I, I guess that's one of the most terrifying aspects of it all but you know like i think that there's also this other situation that is so powerful that we're reading i mean we assume uh i mean the reader can sort of assume what her age is because there is also an ambiguity about that and i guess that also contributes to that faculty but i found it so alluring because every time you know in finding this uh if you haven't read the book uh, the people that are listening to this it is all told from her perspective so every single experience of Uh, or every sense of memory or every sense of belonging, every sense of anchorage is always through her eyes. And also something that I found, I don't know, like I would love to know what you think about this because (laughs) this relationship that she has, she finds this character, Ezequiel, who is a policeman that goes looking for her help uh, to find her cousin that has disappeared and she was abducted and they don't really know what happened. I mean, I'm not going to spoil it for those that haven't read the book, but he comes in to be, you know, into the story also to have this relationship with Gometierra where there is an inherent sort of distrust of him being a policeman. Yeah. And when I found that, I thought it was so incredibly interesting too, in the sense that these situations that have to do with poor disappearance or feminicide or violence against women and she like the the author makes a very keen point on saying on stating that sort of distrust that she doesn't see policemen as you know uh the average person that there is that sort of asymmetrical relationship of power over by 
women, women like her or like anyone that has disappeared and she is trying to find by eating the by eating the dirt um, that is given to her are nobody or are numbers to these policemen. And this humanization of, of the policemen throughout the book of Ezekiel as a person, I found very fascinating because then the character of Cometira is sort of also very traversed by that, by romantic interests and things that she things that she learns along the way, but always with that reticence or that sort of detachment of authorities being inefficient and actually yeah. helping people, you know, and because she she actually refers to her like as a to him as a rati, you know, like as uh, how would you translate like or like a yuta or la cana, which in English would be like yeah like you know, a cop in a kind of derogatory way. And I I think that there's so much sincerity and so much freshness about that because the author does not play coy with the fact that that distrust in institutions. Yeah, I I found that really interesting because even though he as a character is never like he never really acts in a particularly horrible negative way the distrust that Cometierra and others even have for him or characters like him is also always genuine and sincere. It's never like, oh, like, why, why would she distrust? No, it's, uh, it's very, it's very simple uh, why she distrusts them on account of like inefficiency or just not caring. Like, although that's not something we ever see, I think, uh, in this story, like, I, I'm I'm trying to remember whether we're told of it or not, but like police violence is definitely a thing. Like it's it's something that is has been blowing up, especially in the U.S. in, in later years. But um, it's it's also a pretty big thing throughout Latin America. Absolutely, yeah. It's horrifying. It's uh yeah no it's uh, it's bad. <laughs> it's it's nightmarish, and in other places as well. But there is a sense that like yes he is a person but he is still this he's still connected to this institution and one of the things that i really found interesting is how when he's talking to her at one point like oh uh, no one else will help me no one else in the institution will help me like i i need to turn to you to help me to find this person that's important to me it, it yeah. shows how like yeah he is a police officer and and he has friends who are but none of them will do anything else. Like he needs to turn to someone else, someone who like actually sort of cares about these disappearances to do something some, to someone whom, while these disappearances have become a sort of background noise, they, are, they still matter. They're still important. They're still present, even if they are so constant. Um, they're no longer like, yeah, no, that's a thing that nothing can be done. No, a lot can be done. And even just finding finding their their bodies, finding their fates is crucial. Like as um not the book goes into it a few points about like closure and whatnot and how that is isn't even possible really, but how that is an important part of like dealing with this loss and this pain and continuously. 
You know, like in that, and I was thinking about something so provocative that I think is in relation to that specifically. I mean, the situation about the policeman and the background noise that you sort of mentioned regarding the fact that it's so prevalent that at some point it doesn't really, it feels like a, like an impossible enterprise to even, you know, put an end to it, and which I find so disheartening. I mean, that that's sort of like the institutional uh, point of departure, but something that I found so incredibly effective in the novel. And I think, I mean, I'd be lying if I didn't say that, you know, I, I did feel, I, I, I did feel it in like in a, you know, in a sort of like pressure in the chest in a way that I hadn't felt other texts. It is very easy to cry reading this and not yeah. solely because of the situation of the violence that is inflicted on these women, but also because of how successful I believe uh, Reyes has been in doing something that is very difficult to do, which is not to make porn out of pain. Uh, yeah. And I mean, this sort of faculty, and I find that no, not only non-Latin American uh, voices might have perpetuated this, sometimes even Latin American authors within visual culture or, uh, or other aspects of, you know, creative endeavor have perpetuated this idea of like, uh, what, what at least Luis Ospina called, um, you know, like the misery porn, like this idea mm -hmm. of, of having necessarily to look at the wounds in a way that it's exterior or that is detached and sort of like mind that um, because that's the only picture that we can conceive of Latin America and something, I mean, as if it was something that just happened, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> as if it wasn't the consequence of exploitation, colonialism, neocolonialism, intervention, capitalism, etc. But something that I found so like powerful in Reyes is that she does, she does portray and she does mention uh, instances of violence that is inflicted on these women people drowning or being tortured or being beaten but it's never done and even the character herself is like reticent to see those things as the things that define these women yes uh, and she sort of relates only like tidbits of i saw this but everything is just in such a deep connection to her that it's not like she's doing these things without leaving every time a little bit of herself and to me that was just like so moving because it feels like what you mentioned, the sort of possibility of closure in a certain collectivity, like she is, she's her, but she's all of us. You know what I mean? Yeah. So in that way, I found it so incredibly powerful that she dreams of classmates or of a teacher that has disappeared, uh, that she knows that she's dead and she was, she was uh, killed when she was young and she has this recurring dream about her but she refuses to eat the the dirt so she doesn't have to see her uh with those signs of violence and that for me was just like gut-wrenching <laughs> it was very it was very very powerful yeah it's it's really interesting because the way she her power the way she uses that it's not simply Yes, she does this as a service to sort of, you know, uh, sustain herself and survive. But it, there's also in these small ways of like finding out what happened, finding these truths, finding or, uh, cases like finding people alive, but also like figuring out what happened is a way to sort of not let these violences become a sort of 
background noise and all of these like oh it's another one no it's it's a person it's it's their story it's their life and if it's not like um a distinct strong stance against like this violence in a particularly concrete way because you know as you put it it's like it's a whole structure behind it uh it's one way that it it seeks to engage with it it seeks to exist and connect and it's not it's not an easy answer though there are no easy answers or solutions especially being on the ground in in these places but it is it is actively doing something there yeah it's it, it is exactly that i think on how not really uh, i've even put it in the outline that uh, we're using like standing against vi- this violence to sort of figuring out this truth or understanding these stories but it's maybe not as dramatic but it's it's one way to try and act not let this pass you by with indifference to engage with it at a great uh personal toll really in, in physical emotional and psychological ways as i'm sure we're, we're going to get to talking too but it's one way to engage with it actively to to, to the level that cometierra can uh, really and not it's it may seem or it may look like little so to speak but it's it's not and it can make a pretty big difference to uh, in in these ways like small steps towards a potential closure or a, a potential understanding or potential memory of these people who who disappeared they simply disappeared and that is in a way that is much more violent and much more cruel than even it, it, than even simply dying they're just gone as if they were never there as if they they're so insignificant that they could just poof in an instant and that is really horrible and you know like now that you mentioned that there are two things that come to mind that i think are so uh relevant to this discussion uh one is that she does like in in this uh, sentiment that you're describing about sort of going into the personal details of the people that disappear with no trace and making or having this effort of you know shifting the narrative from that anonymity that uh, that riddles all these like official discourses regarding forced disappearance or feminicide for that matter uh mm-hmm. where numbers sort of overtake names uh but there are two things that stand out for me here if i may uh, one of, of them and i was thinking you know cometierra this burden of knowledge the burden of having that knowledge and i'm, I'm recalling this um because when you when you cite this emotional psychological even you know bodily experience that that the character has in engaging yes. with these passages of memory because we we read her being exhausted uh being unable to read you know like wanting to vomit feeling like even the sort of burning sensation when she's eating this dirt and receiving all this knowledge from it and i think about how you know how it also yeah it also comes at the cost of what is the burden of that knowledge uh to be the vessel of all these violences and being unable to do things about them uh some of these victims and some of the people that she sees are already far gone and they're dead 
which I think makes this character so as you know as brutal and uh, brutally relayed but also so lonely and that part to me was just also very moving because she's desperately looking for that relationship to others even though it's paradoxical right like she is defined mm -hmm. by the relationship that she has to others even people that she doesn't know by virtue of eating their dirt and trying to find out what happened to them but you know the proximity is very limited that she has in terms of friends or romances only her brother walter and i think first you know like that that burden of knowledge uh, and i and i that sort of also brings me to the other salient point uh, about what you commented that I think it's so brutal. Uh, this idea of non-being, and I mean, of course, here I'm I'm not coining something, saying, you know, alluding to something that I've coined. I, I take it from Franz Fanon, but this idea of, of all these bodies that are non-beings, if they disappear, nothing seems to happen. Women, racialized folks, gender variant folks, folks that are impoverished, and this the how how brutal it is to think about that except you know that exactly what you mentioned about if they it's like they were never there it's like they're in this perpetual zone of yeah of of no non-being non-existing or existing in a, in a sort of status where they are disposable because ultimately the authorities don't care ultimately for them they are just one number right and I mean, I know and I'm completely aware that these observations might also come from this background of thinking about, you know, the painful prevalence of mass graves in Latin American countries. I mean, in my country, for God's sakes, thinking about the prevalence of even mass graves, either, you know, figurative or literal, being a reality that we live with. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and that, and I mean, for me, that, that was sort of like such a pertinent point, I think, that you underline this thing about these characters and these people being devoid, so, uh, devoid of a, you know, uh, of a presence to begin with. So when they go disappearing, then it is as though they were never there. Yeah, to, this is not really a tangent, but it's a similar point on, especially with, well, uh, given the, the pandemic and just the way that Brazil is handling it, it absolutely the worst. There was, and there still are to a greater extent, like mass graves of it. And it's very much like these people, of course, like more vulnerable communities, people who didn't have much access to healthcare to begin with or, sit, or to systems that were smaller, that were lesser funded than that. And... It's very much of these people who they become these numbers. They become this terrifying statistic that whole lives simply gone, and we know so little of them, or we, we are barely aware of it. It's violence to this scale, be it in a more direct way via uh, feminicide, or, or not exclusively, but just this violence in general, or indirectly via this negligence via this leaving people to die lately it's it's definitely how do you engage with that violence how do you engage with existing in a place where life can be so can value so little and can can become so insignificant and 
the way that Cometierra seems to inch by inch connect and try to bring these memories, try to bring this connection. It's a way to like, yes, it is terrifying. Yes, it is too many. Yes, they disappear and they disappear at an astonishing, terrifying and mortifying way. But they are still people. They're still lives. And this mark of memory, it's... I think it's really important, uh, especially like I'm a historian and that the, the question of memory, how, how do we engage with memory? How do you, what is important to be remembered what to, or to, and to be written about? And so many lives, which we, we can't, and we couldn't even be able to, but that this, this effort to, to try to go, inch by inch, bit by bit, it, it, it makes a big difference. It is crucial at the end of the day. And while the novel itself picks up at a, a very, any potential place, but a specific place at a specific time and with specific people, it speaks to a larger experience and to a larger potential engagement with it, which is this, this effort to memory. And it definitely... <laughs> It takes a toll. It's a, it's a real burn, but it's one way to engage with it in a, in a way that makes sense. I think in a way that that avoids forgetting. I guess. But I know. I think that you know, like especially what you mentioned. I don't think that it's a tangent at all, uh, because I think it's just so incredibly, you know, like the nail on the hitting the nail on the head uh, of this particular instance. Even if it's like you say, like anchored in uh, specific characters in fiction that could very well replicate what is happening currently. And I'm brought to think about um, this uh, situation that you mentioned with the COVID pandemic and its effects being handled by the Brazilian government in the way that it has been, and also leading to all of these folks not having access to even, you know, shoulder the pandemic in a way that could preserve their lives. And I think about it and I think it's so pertinent in the sense that it doesn't feel so tangent when we sort of uh, entangle this and think about these violences, whether it is uh, violences that are exercised through, as you say, feminicide or by negligence to understand them as a whole because they are part of, they are the result of these structural um, negligence towards yeah. anyone that is not wealthy, towards anyone that is not white, towards anyone that is non-gender conforming. And I know that in a way, uh, and of course that is like sort of intersecting with many of these oppressions. So I think that in a way it sort of plays out as an expanded relation to those flaws. You know, like uh, the, this sort of vulnerability within which certain sectors of population, not only in Latin America, um, but elsewhere, are put and the way that institutions respond to those violences and i remember even in the in the book uh, there is an instance where uh, when ezequiel goes finding goes to find cometierra and she is a little bit taken aback because he's a cop and he says something like you know uh in the like that the the cops at the like the cops at the precinct were not going to help him in that he wants to find this person because it is her it is his um cousin and 
the the title character Cometierra has this sort of thought of I wish you could you would look for her because she is a person not because you're related to her yes and that was such like when I think about it it's just so neatly wraps up what you bring up that this is a situation that ultimately is a result of like it's a a structural problem that of course branches out in many other ways lack of healthcare, lack of security, lack of housing, a lack of, um, you know, job security, things that affect disproportionately many sectors of the population that are undercut in their access to safety and to well-being. So I think that it, it sort of dovetails with that because it feels like it's just all part of that same entanglement, you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Like, you're completely right because... As, as you were saying, like these, while the actual like effects are different, the underlying causes and structures are exactly the same and happen because of that exact same way. Be it like marginalizing as a, an effect or a consequence, or actively committing violence. These these things stem out from the same place from these from these institutions and these structures, the way that they've engaged, create and replicate this violence. And oh, that, that section about Cometieria reflecting on Ezequiel's <laughs> why this particular person is important, it's ludicrous to think that he hadn't come face to face with like feminicide or disappearances before or after. But this particular one, because of the, the family ties, like this one is important, but the others are not because, you know, <laughs> and it's such, it's so, you can almost miss it if you're not paying attention, but it's so poignant in exactly underlying, like, yeah, no, this is, it, it only matters if you're related or if you're part of this particular class or this particular color or this particular gender. And if you're not, well, figure it out yourself or don't. We don't care. The subtleties, I think that's something that the book engages with brilliantly on what it shows and what it doesn't show. And the subtleties as they appear and, and disappear, really. How Ezekiel is, on the one hand, like sort of humanized and shows like how he cares and, and wants to, you know, do something about this. But on the other hand, he is still deeply ingrained in this institutional violence. He's still a police officer and he's still very much contributing and existing in all this. It's, uh, it's a brilliant book. And as you mentioned before, it's a punch in the gut. Yeah, it is. And I mean, but at the same time, it was just so incredibly taken about, uh, back by... Uh, the author uh, Dolores Reyes' um, sort of gift to make this bite-sized in a way. It's it you really keep turning the pages because you know that there are, like there is one. It's it's merciless in the way that <laughs> it sort of like gives one punch after the other. But the character is so incredibly like it's so incredibly humane and honest and transparent in many ways uh, that I think that that sort of connects from the get-go, even though these are, of course, very painful passages. And uh, just like to sort of build on that, that you bring about, Mm -hmm. I think that was also such an excellent way to sort of 
delicately make it a very nuanced conversation about when we think about figures of authority, like as a kid sort of standing in for this authority as a policeman, um, but also all these other situations that intersect when he is, uh, in fact, sort of interacting with Cometierra, this sensation of unequal distributions of power, but at the same time, being able to draw a much more nuanced portrayal uh, of that sort of relationship without falling into this sort of uh, the the irredeemable enemy uh, against the title character and this sort of entanglement that they have and then they start sort of cultivating even romantically it was very unpredictable to me <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. and but I think that it allows the novel to sort of go a little bit beyond that sort of rhetoric of institutional distrust yes but to sort of go beyond and see how why is it that that distrust exists in the first place so i think yeah i mean it was to me like reading the book it was it was an addictive read it goes really sort of uh it is it is very tough but it is written in such a way that it's also incredibly alluring i think yeah i and I think that only makes the novel stronger in a way because it's not particularly long and the chapters are, are very small, like some are only a couple of pages and you're really engaged a, a lot of the time. It, it, it's, um, it's a brilliant pacing too on how, how a lot of the time we are connecting with Cometiera internally and how she is engaging attempting to engage attempting to exist attempting to like live and experience the world like on her own right on her own terms and what she wants to do and how that is absurdly fair and legitimate and i think it's what you mentioned how it's so there's a sincerity to the story and the characters that even though uh, there's a lot that they don't know, there's a lot that they don't understand, there's a lot they can't do, they're always trying to, or even when they're not, they are existing and they are trying to understand, trying to carve out their own spaces and trying to exist in, in such a difficult environment where the odds are all stacked against them and the as you mentioned, the imbalance of power is absurd, but there's just a sort of genuine feeling and genuine attempt at existing, at surviving, at living, really, more than surviving. And even how difficult it is, especially, and again, we won't spoil it, but even towards the end, how that is shown, it's really painful and really difficult but there's a sort of beauty to it to a lot of the simplicity and these attempts and these efforts to to live so in a way there's a lot of the power to this is that while it shows a completely bleak situation and story a story and stories of violence that are widespread and there aren't that speak to many different places that is not all there's a lot more to it and to engage with all of this is is an important necessary effort it's not about as you mentioned like the misery porn 
it's mm-hmm. what is there of identity? What is there of memory? What is there of be- beauty here? What is there of connection and relationship here? So I think that's something that the novel really plays at in a way, again, with the nuance that really works, simply put. Yeah, and I mean, I think that there's something so incredibly important in what you mentioned, the beauty of it all, because I mean, I was looking through the notes and I, there is this other part when I think about how incredibly important it is that this is situated in in a very specific, let's say, very detailed account of what happens with her days and what happens with her interaction with others and what happens with her applying that, that sort of gift slash curse of being able to tell what has happened to whatever person by eating the dirt or sort of interacting with this particular element and see what happened to someone that disappeared or perhaps died or perhaps is in a situation of distress, uh, which is the center of the whole action. And I'm brought to think about this because I love the fact that you sort of, I mean, <laughs> sorry to, I mean, I'm just like unveiling a little <laughs> bit of the outline of what was uh, what was the, the discussion sort of like gravitating towards. And you you write something about the grotesque action of eating that, like the dirt and the earth. And I'm brought about like how incredibly well done it is throughout the novel that through that sort of abject action of eating dirt or doing something that is forbidden, something that in, uh, like even in the novel, she recalls in her uh, in her childhood being told by her mom or her aunt or her teacher that she was not to eat dirt in front of others or that, yeah. that she shouldn't be doing this. Like this act of interacting with something that is by definition dirty, like uh, and turning it into an action that can actually relay that sort of beauty, that sort of beauty that is unsuspected, uh, a sort of beauty that comes from her being able to engage with this otherwise uh, dirty or unacceptable or abject act to bring closure to people. And to me, that was just like, I mean, because of that, how incredibly unsuspected that is, that the act of eating something that is dirty can also return, like can return the character to feeling some peace or to gaining knowledge. That was, I mean, to me, it was just like perhaps one of the most interesting instances of how turning something that seems to be so out of place into an endeavor that is actually invested with meaning once the the dirt relays knowledge or information about where a person is or what happened to them. So I think that it is precisely, you know, like that act that would otherwise be deemed unacceptable, relays such possibilities of, I, I don't know, like, I don't know that they're all beautiful, but they're certainly possibilities of knowledge and possibilities of closure. And in a situation whereby closure is so elusive to people that lose their loved ones because they have been abducted, because they never came home, because you never really know what happened to them, or perhaps you found out what happened to them. Uh, and you know, people that are robbed from from families, from communities, that very little, like however little it seems to have that sort of respite of closure, is so powerful because not everyone gets it. Like thousands of people go missing, thousands of women get killed, thousands of trans folks are 
uh, assaulted, especially in, you know, considering in the context of Latin America. So that act of eating dirt and being able to rely not like to relay knowledge to someone to give them that closure like how how well achieved it is in the novel you know it's incredibly unsuspected that that would be the act upon which everything would be built yeah it's it's one of the things that it's so it's not it's never one thing because on the one hand, it is something that she enjoys doing, this connection to the earth, this to the land. There's, there's something that she deeply enjoys about doing that and having this, this bond with it. Even if there is a sort of physical pain at times and it, it is difficult, but it's, there's a constant, I will say tension and paradox about it all, that it is... On the one hand, it is painful, but it was also powerful and positive for her. And it's also like figuring this truth is also important to her while also being difficult to face. It, it, it speaks to it there not being any easy answers, but it being an important course of action to take. And the eating the dirt is the, the descriptions are very detailed and very focused and they're not e- an easy read but they also speak to the these ambiguities that it is it looks ugly really um it's not a simple thing but it's also something that is important to her there's something that she enjoys doing even if it's not simple or easy or, or it's painful for her as well it speaks that an engagement and a facing of these situations will incur a pain regardless, simply of being aware and existing in these spaces. Um, the only way that you you go unscathed over it is to not know it or to willfully ignore it. And that is no solution at all. That is, that's being, it's condoning it really. It's like, oh, it's a thing, it's nothing to be done. Eh, not not going to think about it. And that's no, not a solution. And in showing with this particular case of eating the dirt, the novel shows us like it shows us ways of engaging with it. I think that's one of definitely one of the things to take that it's it's never going to be simple, it's never going to be easy, but there are ways, there are smaller ways that still manage to be important, that still manage to be significant and meaningful, and in it being such a varied process in the story itself is really interesting and works at outlining how how it's a lot of things at once. And it, even through everything, it can still be positive and beautiful, even with its pains through it. Yeah, and I mean, I think especially that uh, that you mentioned about being vocal or sort of visual, like highlighting the existence of a situation uh, in order to you know shed light upon it it's also so tied to the politics of the novel itself and to the politics of engaging with these stories that are incredibly you know rough painful but also unfortunately ever present uh yeah and I mean, I'm, I'm brought to think about this because, I mean, of course, I can only account for my own experience. There is no, not a single person 
that has never been traversed for those by those violences, you know, either directly or indirectly. And the very political act of engaging with that matter for me, it was just so relevant and so important in this book also coming to the fore in a situation where, you know, like that willful ignorance that you mentioned is just, yeah, remaining apolitical regarding a situation that is very real. Yeah. And I I think that that was the enormous also value of, of this enterprise of having this novel be so timely, even though, you know, it, it is fairly recent in this situation about feminicide and for disappearance and such. I mean, of course, predates this novel by a lot. Uh, there is such an incredibly, you know, um, pertinent and timely quality to the book engaging with that. And if I if I may, because I think there was another thing that you that you brought up uh, in our conversation a little bit before we started recording and uh, regarding aligning this book with magical realism. Yes. And I really want to know, because I think it connects with this, with the politics of it, but I would really like to, to know your take on this. Oh, of course. Uh, it's really, it's interesting. I'm going to go back a bit just to, to go forward. It's, I was thinking about this because I, a particular couple of teachers and whatnot, I've had this conversation with about how this is so vague and open. It's not, it doesn't do much as a descriptor, but but that's speaking from an internal point of view, like, oh, writing um, sort of Latin American literature and thinking from a, an internal angle, like, okay, that's the thing. It's a, it, it's a bit generic. It doesn't, this category doesn't mean much. But when I was uh, Googling a, about this book and uh, searching for a few different references, I, I saw it being categorized as magical realism. And I was thinking how that was working, not from an internal point of view, but an external and how how that was so different, or at least that struck me really differently, because it was like, oh, this is how American or Anglo-speaking writers, authors, whatever, may categorize this. It's like, oh, this thing that's coming from Latin America that has some magic to it. Oh, it's magical realism, and <laughs> I would I would absolutely never categorize it as such. It's Sure, there's some magical element, there's something that is unexplained, but that is, it feels so small to, to call it that. It's, it's a novel. It, it's, I, I, categorizing is hard, but like, I put like, oh, it's contemporary, like realism, like, doesn't need the, the magical descriptor, descriptor, like, oh, it has magical elements that, yeah, no, that doesn't matter. They're not, eh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I and I it got me to thinking how there's a sort of difference to in general like I don't think this label accomplishes much but it can definitely carry a different weight when being used from like an internal to an external point of view like to categorize something that you're writing or your readings like as I mean from our background in Latin America and coming from like the US or Europe as that it can be a sort of othering category that's like, oh, you're different, you don't really fit in that well. Like, sure, you have these realist elements, but I don't know, uh, magical realism. It feels like it, it's, it, it came, 
it struck me really quickly, uh, and it's still something that I'm thinking about, and, and I was definitely excited to talk about with you how because I do I would never categorize this story, this novel as magical realism because it feels like it's putting it as less than it is. It is on the one hand a story that tries that tries no it successfully engages with the violence that engages with structural institutional issues in a way that is on the one hand really subtle and really intense and speaks to lived experiences speaks to details speaks to nuance we can we can have a whole other thing for another time <laughs> about like describing and categorizing stories and novels but i the, to me this simply put this is like a realist novel that, that speaks to contemporary experiences and that's enough it, it doesn't need a oh magical realism so what if there's magic elements to it like this this feels like such a small thing to characterize as such like magic yeah that, that's where i'm going with this no but i mean i think uh, i mean no nobody can see you but they probably can feel me like nodding because <laughs> i am absolutely on that same you know like when i saw your note and i think this is something that i struggle a great deal with because while there are works that are rightfully understood as magical realism and readily so, and there is brilliant scholarship and magical realism. I mm -hmm. absolutely agree that this particular book is not, or at least I wouldn't categorize it as such. And I'm brought to this discussion that you bring about that I think is so pertinent, especially because you mention the situation about this sort of outsider type of dynamics and this outsider's view on this being necessarily magical realism that for me becomes really troubling and problematic mm -hmm. because it deflates the political stance of this book yes. and it deflates the fact that however horrid those violences are they are not i mean i find this in the critic as well um however horrid the horrid these violences are to finish my thought uh they are they they seem to be incredibly out of the ordinary, but it is because of how raw they are and how real they are. So to dismiss something that uh, that is ostensibly, you know, like personal experience, not of perhaps this, of course, being written as a, as a work of fiction uh, necessarily, you know, sort of entails that figurative dimension, but it is definitely something that speaks to those, that sort of uh, realism much more than some sort of imaginary, you know, like, how to say this, like fantasy treatment of it. Yeah. And to me, what becomes very problematic, because I had the same situation with uh, Isa Lopez's Tigers Are Not Afraid, Vuelven, this film that became incredibly, you know, a Mexican film, a horror film, that mm -hmm. um, often is labeled by the critic as magical realism. And I think that is a similar instance in the sense that Using it as a descriptor, as you say, often deflates the political and the very, the very real uh, experiences that these situations are are based on these works of fiction. Because, um, for example, I mean, if you haven't, uh, if if the people listening or if you haven't watched Vuelve, it is also woven around the aftermath of. Uh, the, the war against drugs and the violence that it exercises in many layers of society, be it children or women. Mm -hmm. And those realities are so overwhelmingly, you know, present, evident, that to me is 
an absolute disservice to call them magical realism, you know, because it feels even a little bit obscuring and conveniently so obscuring the causes behind it. It is much easier to dismiss a work of, uh, not dismiss it, because that's not the right word. It is much easier to categorize something as as ludicrous in its imagination than it is to acknowledge it and, and acquiesce to the fact that these violences exist. And as we are listening to this or we're talking, they're being exercised on, you know, many folks. So to me, it, it, it's sort of like, it's a little bit contentious and I get a little bit worked up when I see it as a catch-all term because it seems to be, I don't know, uh, I don't know if we sort of are on the same line here, but it seems to be kind of prevalent. Like people think about Latin American literature or visual culture. And in many ways, it seems like, yes, magical realism. And it's like, but hold on a minute. <laughs> you can't really use it as a catch-all term, you know? And it feels like that might be a little bit of a trend uh, or a tendency regarding some of the fiction that comes out from Latin America. Yeah. Yeah, there was... I've had a, a couple of different like encounters with this this phenomenon really of like how do I engage interpreting a, a work like this as such or interpreting a work using this category and how do I feel when uh, someone else from a, a different background from the U.S. for example not thinking of anyone or any situation specific but like how, them using this category and this description how it works and manifest differently because it's i think as you said it sort of defangs really a lot of the the criticism and a lot of the time this this connection to the real which is done via the fantastic or the magic so to speak but that is that is attempting much more than that that it's not like yeah it has this element but it is claiming at it and rightfully so an experience of something more than that and when you call it, oh, this is magical realism, or this is all oh, the magical element to it, it's like, yes, but what is this doing? How is this connecting to what the novel's trying to write about, or trying to say, or trying to consider? To me, the, the, the more I think about it, the more I, it, it can definitely be used in an interesting way and in good work, as you put it, of course. But it can also function, especially as a catch all, in a way that does a disservice to these works that sort of takes away uh, that singles out a, a specific element and sort of leaves aside the whole construction of that of what this these fantastical elements are doing and or attempting to do in the story yeah and you know what i was thinking about that i what also makes me realize like in this particular case or uh that i find like that's that connection with uh, tigers are not afraid or other words that allude directly to violence uh and structural you know problems and flaws as you very you know accurately put it it defends that political stance but i also find something that sort of like specifically a pertaining to this book that rubs me in a very sort of like, it rubs me as a little bit as a problematic or rings problematic to me uh, in the sense that implying that there is a prevalent, uh, you know, a prevalent sort of presence or influence of the magic 
you know, even though it's a very loose kind of term, if one would <laughs> apply it to this particular book, uh, I think that in doing that, there is also this element that does not conceive of these characters or the authors as, as a matter of uh, fact as entities with agency. And that to me is very, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of like a serious contention. Because, yes. um, you know, removing uh, the agency behind these memories or behind portraying these particular violences in the way that the author has chosen to do it is also very conveniently as you say, sort of holding on to one feature of the of the work and somehow obscuring everything that lies behind in the that is behind it uh, or a significant portion of what is behind it in a political sense. And I guess that's that's sort of like what is troublesome that this particular use of magical realism as a descriptor to a lot of works that are not necessarily something that would align with that category or that sort of aesthetic, uh, aesthetic, you know, set of characteristics sometimes has that effect of sort of obscuring where this is coming from. But yeah, it is the, it is the suggestion of a lack of agency that really gets me. <laughs> uh, because I mean, in the grander scheme of things, these works are easily put as the sort of oddities or extravagant ways of looking at, uh, at certain contexts. And with Latin America, I think with visual culture, and even though Latin America is also, you know, uh, a term in quotations, because <laughs> yeah. you cannot unify all these imaginary, but just like for a lack of a better term, Latin America, let's say for something that is intelligible to us all as a thing, uh, <laughs> I keep thinking like, even if you cannot unify, I, I find that these sorts of imaginations are so readily put in terms of magical realism and such, because it seems as though they are not intelligible by the critic otherwise. And I find that kind of worrying. <laughs> um, and I find it like, like you say, like reductive in, in terms of uh, the term that to me doesn't necessarily begin to encompass what Cometiera does. Yes. Yeah, no, I I completely agree. <laughs> there, there is a space to understanding certain stories and certain ideas as magical realism. I think that's fair, but it's, it, it's used. And I think that's what struck me so strongly uh, when looking this book up that it struck me as quite vile to call it magical realism because there's so much more going on that just like calling it as such feels it felt very wrong to me and i just ugh, it did not sit right with me uh, <laughs> and it, it brought me these discussions and questions of like i think you put it perfectly when you said like as an oddity and it's that is just the, the precise way of like defying it. Oh, it's something strange. It's something that they do. It's something that they are doing that that we use to define them as an othering. It becomes othering. And in that, like, you don't engage, you don't go after, you don't understand what it's trying to do from this internal, from this particular point of view. And whatever or however we want to characterize Cometierra, other than, you know, being an impressive and powerful and fantastic novel, uh, magical realism definitely ain't it. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I think so too. And I mean, well, I, yeah, like I would underscore what you underscore as well, that there is most definitely a place to, to talk about uh, magical realism as a recognizable and even subversive category mm, absolutely. that can do a great deal to imagine even, you know, politically a lot of uh, proposals. I Cometero is definitely something that I would just I would not think about in those terms. Um, and I think it's also it's also so important to think about how, as you have mentioned before, like the this sort of realism that might not ring true. I mean, of course, the possibility of someone having this divination power somehow uh, would maybe um, tempt more than want to think about the, the fantastic elements overtaking this, but there's something so incredibly pertinent and, and, you know, significant in underlining how it's closer to a reality and to a lived experience than it is to these other faculties of, uh, fantasy, because it seems as though it is in considering it much more of a, I mean, I'm going to go on the limits here and say, uh, as a much more of a documentary value in a way uh, yeah. than as a fantasy work that the the incredibly, you know, like, you know, overtly political intention or political reading that we can have of the book shines through. Yeah. And that's um, just something to like briefly mention, because I, I was thinking about it with another novel that I read not too long mm -hmm. ago. I, I won't mention it here. I'll, I can mention it later. <laughs> but uh, which has been really popular in Brazil and really, really good. But how that engagement with a political novel, political work of fiction, but that does that does the work of the fiction, that the work as a, a piece of art, really. And that connects with these both these aspects as fiction, as art, but also as political, as a testimony as a statement, as a documentary, as you said. To me, Cometierra is the gold standard now <laughs> on <laughs> doing it in a way with all the subtleties, all the detailing, all the focus of, of a novel, of a piece of art, while also engaging with the political in such a strong and powerful way. It's, um, it's impressive and amazing. I, I loved Cometierra and I cannot recommend it enough if you're willing and you have like the, the stomach and willpower to read it uh, now it's it's really really good yeah please do because i think yeah you're absolutely right and i i mean I'm, of course like i think about i want to know this book that you're talking about <laughs> uh which no uh, i want to know about this novel i don't know if uh, if you'll be sharing it on another episode if so i will I will ask you after we're done recording. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's definitely this other faculty that I think it's so incredibly valuable as a takeaway uh, if one would be to sort of tackle exactly what Cometiera does and what other works of contemporary fiction do. And I move to think more about film because if that's my background, like stuff like this that is so it seems to be removed and it seems to be only set in the near future and yet it speaks so powerfully to the realities that we're seeing and it indicts them in such a way that there is no longer or i don't know like i am of course this is purely personal and i think about it like these sorts of manifestations of art cannot be 
apolitical and should not yes. be apolitical. This idea that we just do things to, I mean, of course there is a time and a place to enjoy things for what they are, but there's also this other thing that moves me specifically if we talk about Cometierra or if we talk about films like Vuelven, or I think of course about my gold standard of contemporary Brazilian film, Bacurau, <laughs> <laughs> which is, I think does something similar, this sort of almost yeah, like putting the finger on the on this this sort of reality and this sort of like political commitment of doing this through through the aesthetic and through affection and through treatments of these realities. And I think it sort of leaves me with this very strong uh, commitment that I gather from these works as yeah, as these enterprises not being able to afford being apolitical, you know. And, yeah. and and that sort of that sort of indebtedness of like that sort of that between the aesthetic and the political as situations that are entangled and cannot be conceived like separately in this particular book, which I think is perhaps one of the one of the biggest takeaways of reading it. So I really hope that the people listening to us if, if they haven't read it, that they and that they have, like you say, the stamina and, you know, to, to read it, because yes, it is very emotionally taxing, but it's definitely worth the while. Oh, absolutely. And I think, I, I couldn't put it better myself, really. And I think this is um, a pretty nice place to sort of wrap up, really, unless there's anything else you want to say. I think we went pretty much what we were thinking and what we were outlining and covering what how this novel does so much and just different angles of the possibilities and even expanding on it, uh, talking about how would we categorize this novel and the question on magical realism. So I think this is a pretty good place to, to sort of call it a day for now, if that's fine for you. Yes, absolutely. The only thing that I would want to close with is the Thank you so much for this talk. I had been burning to talk about this book <laughs> and I couldn't find like a, you know, a, a, a better partner to exchange this with. So thank you so much, Frank. Oh, thank you, Valeria. It's, it's my pleasure. Like it's, uh, it's part of the thing. It's about bringing these people, these friends, you obviously, um, <laughs> to both share about their work and talking about works that they are finding important or that are important to them or that have been important and just have a place for these conversations and, and just think about them. So I'm really happy to, that it, it, it's so nice for you as well. But yeah, th thanks, thanks again, like it's been fantastic. And before we, before we called it a day, uh, <laughs> just uh, where can people find you and more of your work? Uh, you mentioned a bit before, I'll, I'll put all relevant links in the description and how can people support you really? Well. Uh, well, I like I I don't know. There's a there's a, a phrase in in English for this, but in Spanish I say you know like I'm I'm just like in every in in every, with a finger in every pot, you know. <laughs> so I'm doing a lot of, of things <laughs> all the time. But yeah, you can find my writing uh, for like open open access in May feminism and visual culture, from which I am a very proud. A uh, member of the board, you can also, and you know, like take the plunge. We have some issues coming for all your feminist needs on visual culture. Uh, we also, I also have a piece, of, a piece on Grim magazine. 
I have been uh, also, uh, well, you can find some of my stuff in Screen Queens. And also I, I will be doing, well, aside from the books that I mentioned, Women Make Horror and The Body on, uh, the body on Screen, um, where I have been featured, I will be doing some uh, panels and stuff like that. So I will be sharing them. I mean, I think it will be, yeah, we'll be doing some uh, some open panels. But as long as I as as soon as I have the the details and the, and how to sign up, I will share them with Frank. If that's okay. Yeah, do let me know, and I'll share them widely as much as I can. Yes. So I will be, you know, I will be really happy to discuss more discuss more books and works of fiction with you. We already have some ideas in the back burner. Absolutely. So. This has been such a lovely, lovely talk. And uh, seriously, thank you for the invitation. So I look forward to you know sharing some more thoughts on the other book that we have mentioned that we will keep on the wraps. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Like it's it's been an immense pleasure and an honor really to, to like to share and to think about all this. It's it's been really fun. On my end of things, like you can find this on, on Twitter as well at left page bottom usually talking or sharing things there if not on my it's on my personal twitter which is at frank gothic so so also some rants and uh, reflections on literature and the sci-fi a lot which is what i've been working on and if you can if, if you're so inclined if not that's perfectly fine but you can support us on patreon at patreon.com forward slash left page and there's some stuff which are the reading corners i usually take a piece of literature or even like academic reading that I've been doing and talk a bit about it on there because it, it wouldn't make into an episode or it might in a long while. And there's also the poetry club where me and my former co-host Bruno, we talk a bit about a poem and have some interesting and usually bizarre discussions about them as we try to read them. So do check those out if you're interested. And yeah, I think that's it from us. It's been an amazing and impeccable episode. And I'm just really happy that we're able to have this conversation. So thank you so, so much for listening. Thank you. Si observas desde afuera, no lo notas. Pero una duda crece en mi cabeza. ¿Será que lo mejor es ir a prisa mientras doy vuelta en la esquina de los ojos que me acechan? ¿Será que les aguanto la mirada o será mejor andar y dar la vuelta en otra cuadra? La otra cuadra es un poco lo mismo, ciudad exponencialmente pesada. ¿Será que solo soy placer gratuito, un anaquel abastecido, mire a ver si algo le agrada? ¿Será que en esta curva de cadera mi vida corre peligro más que en la de carretera? Mi madre me decía, ten cuidado, mejor no andar de noche por las calles. Fíjate muy bien que cualquier trago que te tomes te lo sirvan cuando estés allí delante A mis hermanos no sé qué les dijo, no sé si le mortifique que alguna mujer los mate
todas correremos con la suerte Estar de suerte ahora es estar viva Ahora estar de suerte es que tu novio no resulte violador, abusador o femicida Ahora estar de suerte es que a la muerte no le guste tu cintura y en su troca no te siga Yo ya no sé qué hacer con esta rabia Tampoco mis amigas y parejas Denuncias y denuncias y denuncias y denuncias Y no más no se ve nadie tras las rejas Están libres afuera emborrachando a alguna chica Para ver si en unas horas la corteja Observas desde afuera, no lo notas, pero una duda crece en mi cabeza. ¿Será que lo mejor es ir a prisa mientras doy vuelta en la esquina de los ojos que me acechan? ¿Será que les aguanto la mirada o será mejor andar y dar la vuelta en otra cuadra? <risa> 